Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears to the things you want us to see, the things that you want to teach us, so that we can conform and change our lives into more of your image. We thank you, Father, for your words that go forth. In your son, Husha's name, we give thanks. Amen. Okay, verse 49 here, huh? How many Torahs is there? That's not what some of the other congregations teach. They say there's two Torahs. There's one for the, for the uh, non-Hebrews or the non-Jews, and then one for you guys who are not, right? That's not what it says. We're going to talk about this, uh, the two, is that uh, you see here it says there's one Torah for the native-born and for the stranger, and then you see here it says... A sojourner and a hired servant does not eat of it. But then in verse 48, it says, When a stranger sojourns with you and, and shall perform the Passover, we're going to talk about this distinction between these words. I gave a teaching on it months ago, but it really comes down to uh, one of them is the one that's able to, to participate in it is a person who has come into covenant, who is now in covenant relationship, who is decided to all that he says I will do. The other ones who are mentioned here, the, the other Hebrew words, uh, this one is a ger, but uh, the other ones are people who are just passing through or maybe staying for a little bit, but they have made a decision not to come into covenant. That's the difference. Okay. So um, we're going to start in Revelation 18.1. We're, let me back up one second. So what are we going to talk about today? So today, uh, usually I've got about 30-something slides for our three portions. Today I only have eight. And so last week we talked about, Bob brought up something that uh, uh, we just had a brief little bit to talk about, and I didn't get a chance to stay and answer questions and whatnot. So I spent Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday bringing up textual references, digging into what words mean in Hebrew and Greek so that we can get a better understanding of what was brought up. I had mentioned to Bob, I said, it's okay, because I had already talked to you guys about this kind of a topic. We had already addressed it a little bit. We didn't get dig deep into it. And I can assure you that the hour that we're going to have today, we're not going to have enough time to dig into all of what we need to talk about. But what I want to say is, when we get to this topic after the first, after the Torah portion, um, I want, what I'm presenting to you is, let's look at this as a community. Let's consider what the texts say and what we have been taught, and let's look at it as a community. Uh, I'm willing to say I could be wrong in anything, including things in the past, including let's look at it and examine it, and let's all dig in and see what it says, Okay. So let's look at Revelation 18.1 first, which is our New Testament portion. 
And it says, after these things, and I find this interesting because as we've been talking about how Jonathan Kahn brought out the gods of, of, of Babylon have returned, and they're all over America. So notice some things here. I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. He cried out with a mighty voice, saying, and notice the words fallen, fallen, because this is going to be repeated in our uh, prophet portion. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And so this reference here is not referring to the Twin Towers, and it's not referring to you know, anything else that has been mentioned in the past, because this was something mentioned already in the prophets. And they're addressing something in the prophets, and they're speaking about the same thing here. And we'll get into that in a minute. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every, clean, of, uh, every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion. And here you're going to get an identi identi a little bit of a clue of, of the identity of who this is being referred to. Because we had talked about how the first one of Babylon was Baal, and he got them to forget God. The second one was uh, uh, Ishtar or Ishtate. She got them to go into sexual immorality. Ooh, look at what here, the first thing. They have become drunk in the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. This is that one that came in after Baal, not only to Babylon, but Egypt, and has come into all the nations of the earth, who is now getting the earth to do these things uh, that has started after the rebellion at uh, Babylon. Okay. Again, as always, if you have comments or questions, raise your hand. The mic will make its way to you. Moving on into verse 4. It says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. And I would suggest that's what you guys have done when you've realized that the scriptures are more than just something to read about other people. You started realizing that they were for you, and you started applying them, and then you started realizing your identity, that you weren't just someone reading about stories of other people, but it's about you and your relationship of being an Israelite yourself by accepting the Messiah and coming into the kingdom. Uh, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. This word sin and the word plague is not only in our Torah portion about what's happening in Egypt, but it is something we're going to talk about in the piece that I want to dwell, with, dwell on here a little later. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Anybody know what the Hebrew word for iniquity is? Avon, yes. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come. Hmm, what would that look like? In Oh, I did. I took out uh, the... I'm sorry, I, I said we were going to look at the... I took out... 25 slides that I'd already prepared for the prophet and the Torah portion to make room for what we're going to talk about later. So in our prophet portion, Isaiah, it, and someone will have to look it up for me because I, it's gone, but it's in Isaiah that talks about Babylon has fallen and fallen. It's repeating the same thing the Revelation is saying here. And so what's interesting is you have to look at the context of what's happening here. And when you look at this prophet portion, immediately after talking about Babylon has fallen, 
it mentions about Edom, a, a judgment against Edom. And remember, our brothers in Israel, our brother Judah says that Edom is modern-day Rome. That's who they say that it is. Okay. If someone has it, you can read that portion in Isaiah if you have it. Anyone have it? Babylon has fallen? Fallen? Okay. Huh? Someone has it? Okay, we'll move on. All right, in our Torah portion of verse 43, it says, And Yahweh said to Moshe and Aaron, This is the Torah of the Passover. No son of a stranger to eat it. This word stranger is the Hebrew word nekar, and it means that which is foreign. This derivative is usually rendered strange or stranger in the King James, but foreign or foreigner in the RSV. It is used of a foreign god, foreign altars, foreign country, everything that is foreign. Meaning, if it's a foreign god, it's not part of God's kingdom. So, meaning that this stranger is not covenant relationship with God, just like the foreign gods aren't. Hopefully that makes sense. In the Greek, the Greek word is elogenes, and it means sprung from another race, a foreigner or an alien. So, someone from another nation. Interesting, isn't it? So that gives you an idea that it's not talking about people that have come into the covenant. So in other words, all the people that came out of Egypt when they come out with Moses and Aaron... Both the Israelites, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians, and the Midianites, and other nations that joined, when they came under the bond of the covenant and said, all that he says we will do, they all became one people, able to partake in the Passover. These people who have decided not to come under the bond of the covenant should not partake of it and are not allowed to. Again, if you have questions or comments, raise your hand. The mic will make its way to you. Exodus 12:34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the cloths on their shoulders. The Greek word for leaven here is this, this Greek word zoom, and it means uh, leaven, fermenting matter, probably from zeo to heat, so-called from heating or fermentation of the mass of dough. Most often, though not always, in Scripture, the word represents evil, including uh, in Matthew 13, 33, if properly understood. The real significance of leaven is shown in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 as being destructive and typifying what does not belong originally and essentially to life, namely sin. And we're going to dig into this word sin here a little bit later. It is sin, disturbing and penetrating daily life. It first appears in the institution of the Passover, and in the ritual of sacrifices. All that disgraces the, the believer and detracts from his holy newness of life is an example of the leaven of sin. It represents false doctrine, that which is opposed to that which is truth. Yes. Oh, the scripture is Isaiah 21, 9. Uh, and behold, he comes riding in a chariot and pair. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all her images and her idols have been crushed to the ground. 
my belief is the context of that scripture is they're referring to the old ancient Babylon and what evil and the, the, the deities that had, had swindled them into walking away from God. Then it, right after that, it talks about Edom. So I find it interesting. It's talking about the foreign gods of, of, of Babylon and then the punishment of Edom and how our brother Judah says that, that uh, Edom is Rome. Very interesting with that. Okay, thanks, Mike, for looking that up. Talking about leaven here, I just wanted to show you something. I've mentioned this before, so I just thought I'd throw this in here. If you took Yom Teruah that we celebrated here uh, a month ago, and what, a day or two, a month and a day or two, of 22, 22, 22 and you added the 1,290 days of Daniel, I believe it's chapter 7, it brings you to the very day of the seventh day of unleavened bread in 2026. Feast to feast, holy day to holy day. Just like the 430 years that they were from the time of the promise to the time they came out was from Passover to Passover. The two bookends are the feasts, and then that gives you the number of days or time in between, number of years. I believe that the number of days is the duration between the bookends, which are feast days. And you can do your own calculation and your math. It works out exactly to the seventh day of unleavened bread. Very interesting. Okay. That was just something to throw in there about unleavened bread. Okay. The Exodus and the firstborn. The second addendum to the Passover story relates the Exodus to the firstborn. The link is especially important in that it provides the rationale for the principle that the firstborn, and I'm putting this in here because we're going to be talking a lot about firstborn. The firstborn are God's possession, a regulation that applied to animals as well as found in counterpart in God's claim on the first fruits of produce. It is likely that in prehistoric times, here's the word redemption, redemption of the firstborn was a substitute offering to compensate Elohim for the loss of former human sacrifice. There is no evidence that human sacrifice was ever legitimate in Israel. At any rate, an awesome, mysterious relationship between the firstborn and the Creator was certainly felt thereafter. Now, I'm, I'm putting that in there because think about what Messiah did and why it had to be on Passover and how it relates to the Exodus. And I'm giving you clues here of what's the things that are common threads and denominators. The Exodus experience deepened this ancient bond and made the redemption of the firstborn into a permanent rite of gratitude rather than substitution. The legislation in this section is supplemented in other Torah passages. Verse 43 in chapter 12. And Yahweh said to Moshe and Aaron, This is the Torah of the Passover. The Greek word is Pascha, and it, it's transliterated from the Hebrew Pesach to Passover. Now, I, I'm putting this in here for a reason because it so touches on what we're going to talk about. To spare immunity. Think about immunity. How could the Messiah's death bring us immunity? The great sacrifice and festival of 
the Hebrews was so was instituted in the commemoration of Elohim's sparing of the Hebrews when he destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians. It was celebrated on the 14th day of the month, Nisan, which for the institution and particular laws of this festival, you would see Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, Numbers 9. The later Hebrews made some additions. In particular, they drank four cups of the wine at various intervals during the Paschal Supper. The third of these cups, called the cup of benediction, is referred to in 1 Corinthians 10.16 and Matthew 26.27. In the New Testament, to Pascha, the Passover may refer to the festival or the Paschal Lamb. So I have a question to you. On that night of the exodus from Egypt, when the destroyer went through the homes, who had immunity on that night? Who had the immunity? Huh? The firstborn. What did they have immunity from? Death. So there's got to be a connection between our immunity from death, since that's what it says that was nailed to the cross, and firstborn. Hmm. Exodus 22:29 says, "You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me." Numbers 3:13 says, "For all the firstborn are mine on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast, they shall be mine." I am Yahuwah. Firstborn's his. Every firstborn is his. Now we're going to get into something specific about, well, I have it here. Jeremiah 31.9 says, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim, we sung a song here at the end of our worship about Ephraim, my firstborn. How I long so he is his firstborn. Ephraim is his firstborn. But wait a minute. Ephraim had a curse. Ephraim had a divorce. Ephraim was sent out. Ephraim was no longer part of the family. But every firstborn is sanctified to him. We can get into that. Uh, let's see. Moses, his ministry as judge, priest, and prophet anticipated Messiah's own ministry. The Passover celebration and sacrifice help us understand Messiah's own sacrifice on the stake on our behalf. In the Exodus, Elohim liberated Israel from the bondage of, what was it you said, Ralphie, the, the, you, you put that thing there, the B-I-B-L-E from Egypt. So think about that. Liberated from the bondage of Egypt or Babylon, the, what, what Babylon and Egypt stood for. With great acts of power, through it, Elohim gave birth to a new people. And I got to say to you, when I came into understanding of the Torah and all that God's feast and Shabbat has meant for me, I'm a new person. I'm not the same. Completely changed. 
My wife, my kids, my sisters, they'll tell you. That's, he's not the same guy. So he gave birth to new people, at, and he's freed us from the bondage of death with the greatest act of grace and power, death and resurrection. In Messiah, God has recreated us as a new people. Therefore, a holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Messiah the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in his house. Our Messiah was faithful, and he redeemed us from something. Yeshua, or Yehushua, came to give immunity to his firstborn. So, Isaiah 53, 8, which is our prophet portion. I'm sorry, it's not. Isaiah 53, 8 is the declaration of the coming Messiah. And in it, it says this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered it? That he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression, how many know what the Hebrew word for transgression is? Pesha. It's a breach of contract. It's a, it's a break of trust. For the transgression or lawlessness of my people to whom the stroke was due. I put death here for stroke because this word stroke is the same word for plague in our Torah portion. And the plague in our Torah portion is referring to death. Check this out. Exodus 11 says, Now Yahweh said to Moshe, One more nega I will bring upon Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. This word is, it means mark, plague, stricken. But what did this plague, what, what did it bring? Death. So he says, I, the Messiah is coming for a people who had this plague of death upon them. Right here prophesying about the Messiah. Keep that in your mind. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. So the Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and by the others in the land who had returned from their immoral customs to worship Yahuwah, the God of Israel. Then they celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. There was great joy throughout the land because Yahweh had caused the king of Assyria to be faithful to them so that he helped them to rebuild the temple of Elohim, the God of Israel. This is the Passover when they came out of exile. What's the first thing to do at redemption? But what, what's the feast? Passover. Passover is at redemption. Look at it. I mentioned it last week. Abraham goes and redeems Lot from death from the five kings of the north. It tells you right in there it's Passover. At, at Sodom and Gomorrah, they're coming to destroy the whole town. Death is upon the city. It's Passover. Lot is redeemed at Passover from Sodom and Gomorrah, the death sentence. So you see so many of these things about Passover and redemption, that it's about redemption from something, something that's against us. Okay. Now we're going to get to the real meat that we want to talk about, okay? Again, let's consider this as a fellowship. 
I encourage you all to dig in and search these things for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Let's be Bereans and dig into what the word says. My question is, I had three questions. Who did he come for? Why did he come? And what was the reason he came? Who, why, and what? So you know it's interesting? So I said, okay, if, if he came for something, there's passages all in the Tanakh about the Messiah coming. I should find evidences of that he came for sin. And I spent three days hunting. I didn't find any. I want to show you what I found. Here's the who. Matthew 15, 24. But the master answered and said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now I put Israel, which is the northern kingdom. I would encourage you to do a word search on house of Israel and house of Judah, and you'll find that they are representing the northern and southern kingdom. So I put Israel in green and Judah in this, what's the color? I don't even know that color. Huh? Teal? Okay. Matthew 10.5 says, Yahushua sent the twelve out, having commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, don't go into Samaria, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the very people that he said that he came for only. Jeremiah 3.18 has these two houses distinctly in the same verse, so that you can see it's definitely representing two groups of people. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. House of Israel, northern kingdom. House of Judah, southern kingdom. It's interesting that Isaiah 5-7 says, the vineyard of Yahweh Zevaot is the house of Judah? Not what he says. The vineyard of the Almighty is the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. I would say that's you folks. You're his vineyard. I don't get so excited because the vineyard has to get pruned once in a while. It isn't always fun. So this is the who. Lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here's the what. Isaiah 50 verse 1 says, Thus says Yahuwah, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce? whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? You were sold for your, the Hebrew word here is iniquity, and your mother was put away for your transgression. Where's sin in there? No sin here. Jeremiah 3.8 says, And I saw that for all the adulteries and faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. I want to show you that Deuteronomy 27, 15 tells us that there's a curse on a certain group of people. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image. Did the northern kingdom do that? They did. And so they became a cursed people. An abomination to Yahweh, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. They swore to it. They agreed that if we do that, we're cursed. They had a curse upon them. 
want to read to you Deuteronomy 24.3. says, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her certificate of divorce, what happens? If he gives her a certificate of divorce and she goes and takes another lover, can he take her back? No. So when the northern kingdom was divorced and they went and took lovers, idols, could he take them back? No, unless this, this takes a certain stipulation. What's the stipulation that's required? Death. The, the bridegroom, Messiah, had to die to take the bride, the bride back again. Yes. Um, from Isaiah 51, it says, Look, you were sold for your crookedness or iniquity, which sounds like sin to me, and your mother was put away for your transgressions, which also sounds like sin to me. They are labeled. There's this. So you're going to see we're going to get into the word sin in a minute. You can take the word sin, and it encompasses many different things. And I think what I'm proposing, and I haven't done all my research yet, but my question is, when I'm looking at the New Testament, and I'm seeing the English word sin that's taken from a Greek word that represents one of the five or six definitions of sin in Hebrew, which one is it referring to? And we're going to get into that. So it gets a little muddy looking at that. It takes a lot of research to fi- figure out what's it, what's it referring to. I want to read to you Deuteronomy 21, 22. If a, com- if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on the tree, he can't stay all night. they got to bring him down. So the man that has a sin worthy of death must go on the tree. Did Messiah go on the tree? That's because we all had a sin worthy of death upon us. And that, that had to be met so that it is legally met and and the consequence has been remedied. Just like the curse, it all has to be legally taken care of. And this is what he did on the tree. I'm going to read you Leviticus 20, verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress must surely be put to death. Did the northern kingdom commit adultery? Spiritual adultery? They did. So they had a death sentence on them. So we've got, we, now we've verified that they had death sentence and that they were cursed. Hmm. That's the what. Oh, and divorced. Divorced, death, and cursed. Okay? And we just talked about the only way you can nullify the divorce is the one who wrote it's got to be put to death. Which he did. He died. Now the why. Genesis thirty-five eleven, And Elohim said to him, I am El Shaddai, bear fruit and increase. A nation and a company of nations shall be from you, and sovereigns shall come from your body. So he's making a promise and an oath to Abraham that Abraham's going to have goyim come from him. Not Jews and Israelites, goyim. Who do the Jews call you today? Goyim. <laughs> Genesis 15, 18. On the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I have given this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So who did he give it to? Abraham's seed. 
you're Abraham's seed. But there's another promise here that he made to the seed who are the nations who re, that's connected to the land. Let's read it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And it shall be when all these words come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you shall bring them back to your heart among the nations where you've gone. Have you guys brought his words to your heart now among the nations where he scattered you? Have everybody brought the words of Yahweh to your heart? The Torah, has it come to your heart? Yes. And shall turn back to Yahweh your Elohim and obey his voice. Are you guys doing your best to obey the Torah now? Okay. Sounds like this is kind of applying to you. I don't know. I... According to all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your being, and all and your children, then Yahweh your Elohim shall turn back your captivity and shall have compassion on you. That's mercy. That's grace. And he shall turn back and gather you from all the peoples where Yahweh your Elohim has scattered you. And if any of you are driven out from the furthest parts under the heavens, from there, Yahweh Elohim does gather you, and from there he does take you. I have called the heavens and earth as witness today against you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore you shall choose life so that you live, both you and your seed, to love Yahweh Elohim, to obey his voice, and to cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, to dwell in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers, so he's remembering them of the promise to Yitzhak, to Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, to give them. By the way, a little side note, Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Wherever you go, even to Arizona. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Wait a second, you're divorced. You've got a curse, you've got a death sentence. How's he going to bring you back? He promised that he would. He promised your fathers he'd bring you back. How's he going to do it? He's got to take the curse away. He's got to take the death away. He's got to take the divorce away. Did that all happen at the stake? I submit to you that it did. And Yahweh Elohim shall bring you into the land of your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He shall do good to you and increase you more than your fathers. Yahweh Elohim shall circumcise your heart, the heart of your seed, to love Yahweh Elohim with all your heart, with all your being, and all that your might. And Yahweh Elohim shall put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall turn back and obey the voice of Yahuwah and do all his commands which I command you today. Is that a promise? The only way it could happen to us that had the divorce, had the curse, and had the death was he had to come, take the curse, take the death, and deliver us from the divorce certificate. Again, if you have comments, questions, or additions, or addendums, please jump in. We're just getting started. Yes, go ahead. So First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, 39, it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but her husband dies. She is free to marry to whom she wishes only in, you know, in um, yep. Yehovah. So 
we're we're freed, so there's allows him to bring us back into because of the death. Because yeah. of the he, death, he nullified the divorce certificate. He's the one that wrote it. Exactly. You know, when my my dad had contracts that he had signed, whether it be a, a contract with a car company for car payment, whatever it is, a loan that he had done with some bank, or whatever. When he made those contracts, only his name, not my mom's name, but only his name. When he died, what happened to those contracts? They were nullified. They're gone. Contract doesn't exist anymore because the one who the contract was with had died. Nullifying the contract. Keep that in your mind. I want to show you something as I dug into this. We're gonna, this, this is fun. Exodus 22.9. I, I brought this up so we, I don't have to read this again. That I put this into our Torah portion or the other so you could see it. But I went into that on who the, who the firstborn is. And why the firstborn is important. Now I want you to look at Luke chapter 5 verse 32. Our master makes a statement. And he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Wait a minute. Do you think, let's just take a minute. In all of Jerusalem, do you think there was at least five people that were righteous in Jerusalem? There would have to be, right? Had to be. He said, I didn't, come, to, I didn't call, come for those people. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. Oh, let's look and see what sinner is. It's this Greek word, hamartolos, and it means someone who is sinful. And the Greek word, or the Hebrew word, is hataim, and it means a sinner offender. But I want to show you something. So to secure this decision, Bathsheba refers again to the fate which would await both herself and her son Solomon after the death of the king. Because she knew that after the death of the king, they would both be, and what's used here is the word chata'im, and the word chata'im means guilty of a capital punishment. What's a capital punishment? Death. You see, this word that, that we would render as sin, it's, it, if you say sin, you're glossing over the word. It's way more than just sin. Sin just means to miss the mark. This word means you've, you've done something that deserves death. I just read you verses that says, he who has done something worthy of death must be da-da-da-da-da. We talked about that. And then she says, we should be punished as though guilty of high treason. That's what this word hata'i means. So Messiah says, I didn't come for the righteous who were in covenant with me, who were keeping my Torah and keeping my commands. I came the person to, to deliver the one who has committed high treason against me, who's committed the death sentence, who I kicked out, who was divorced from me. I came for that person. So we're going to get real clear and cl get clarity here on some of these words so we can understand what's being said. Here's this word. Greek word, hamartolos, and it is someone who is devoted to sin. I've got tools here. Devoted to sin or crimes a heathen. Well, wait a minute. The Jews over here in Jerusalem aren't heathens, but they called the Samaritans heathens. They called them, the whole, the whole idea of Gentile is meaning godless and heathen. That's what this word is referring to. That's not the person who's in covenant relationship, who just stumbles and, and, and commits a, a, an act that's missing the mark. 
I mean, let's face it. All, the Scripture says no one's without sin. We're all of sin, but we're not heathens, are we? No. Here's what this one commentator said. This Greek word, hamartolos, state, is one that is opposed to the Torah. So this word sinner is someone opposed to the Torah, which the northern kingdom was because they broke commands, they did the idolatry, did the things that got them booted out. They were opposed to the Torah. As a matter of fact, they said, we're not even going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to create our own feasts. We're going to create our own stuff. We're setting up a whole another worship here. Nope, that's opposed to Torah. So sorry, that's what gets you exiled. 1 John 5.18 We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him. This is that word opposed to Torah. No one who is born of God is opposed to Torah. Doesn't mean uh, missing the mark, because we're all missing mark. We all, have, we all make mistakes, but we're not opposed to Torah. You see how getting a definition on this makes sense? Because when you read this face value, you think, well, wait a minute. I mean, I, 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 I am born of God, but goodness sakes, I do sin. I mean, uh, uh, this makes me look like I'm, I have no hope. We've got to dig again. We've got to look at what this, the, the, the word means in the Greek and the, the original languages. Watch what this word means, hermitano, that's used here for sins. Someone who has wandered from the path of uprightness, who have wandered from the Torah of Elohim. That's what the word means. So we know that no one who is born of God wanders from the path of righteousness or wanders from the law of God. Of course not, because they're born of God. It's the sinner who has done that, this guy. Am I making sense? If I'm saying, if you're getting what I'm saying, say amen. Okay. All right, we're getting into some really good stuff here, so hold on. John eleven fifty. 50. Caiaphas, the high priest, is doing a prophetic word here. And he says, do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish? Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied by the Holy Spirit that the master Yahushua was going to die for the nation. Now, this word, Greek word, which is ethnos, and I'm putting here, right here, it's in a singular tense. Notice what the definition of this word says. When it's in the singular tense, it's speaking of who? Not the godless who are out there. It's talking about the Hebrew people. Who are the northern kingdom? Hebrew people. This is clarity, people. This is getting clarity of who he came for, what he came for, why he came for. And now we're going to get to something really good. You thought that was all good? This is really good. I like it a lot. Matthew 9, 12. But when Yeshua heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The Greek word here for sick is kakos. Now, it means to be miserably ill. Someone who is perishing, 
or destroying someone who is improperly wrong. Oh, but that's not good enough. We're going to find out really what it's referring to here in a second. Kakos. I have the ability to take this Greek word kakos, and I can take the Greek word kakos into the Septuagint, find it in the Septuagint, and look at the Hebrew word that's, that it's married to. And we're going to look and see what that is. So we know it's not sick like someone who's got you know, a cold, because here's the Greek word for those people. It's astheneo, and it appears six to, uh, 19 times. I'm giving you a few examples. He t- tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. He says, the naked, and you, you, uh, the naked and you clothed me not, I was sick and you visited me. Matthew 25, when he did see you sick or in prison and come to you. And in Mark 6, 56, it says he went into the cities, the countryside, they were laying hands on the sick in the marketplaces. That's all this word, which means someone who's under some physical ailment. But this word, kakos, you're going to see it's not that kind of sickness. But how many of you would read that thought that it would mean someone who is sick with some kind of physical ailment? <laughs> By the way, the word for healthy is the, the Hebrew word chazak, which means strong. But what does sick mean? Kakos, what does it mean? How many of you want to know? This is, a, this is an amazing revelation, and you should write this down because you need to be sharing this with everybody that you want to see come to the truth. I believe this will help. Kakos comes up six times in the Torah, or in the, the Tanakh. And the first one is Exodus twenty two twenty eight. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Leviticus nineteen fourteen. You shall not curse a deaf man. Leviticus 29, if there is anyone who, is, who curses his father. So the word kakos, every single time in the Tanakh, refers to someone who is cursed. So let me rephrase what was said here. The master said, when he heard this, he said, it is not the strong and healthy you need a physician, but those who are cursed. I already showed you who the scripture says who are cursed. The cursed ones are the ones who have broken the Torah, who have done idolatry. The ones who have, all these things that came upon the northern kingdom, they became the cursed people. Because who Messiah had to go on the tree to rectify the curse. I came for the cursed ones. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's very, very clear. How many of you liking this so far? Am I, is everything clear so far? Okay. They're so quiet, I've got to make sure we're on the same page. Okay. So now, if we're just talking about that Yeshua came for just me missing the mark here, like all of us do as we're going through Torah, then I should find references of that, especially in Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant, right? It talks about what he came for. Let's look. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely or truly he has borne our sickness. Ooh, there's that word sickness. And carried our pains, yet we reckoned him stricken, smitten of Elohim, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our sin? Nope. The word is pesha that we talked about earlier, transgression, which is lawless in Greek. He was crushed for our iniquity, crookedness. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Not from a toothache or, you know, 
It's healed from the, the real sickness that we just talked about, which was the, the curse that was upon us. We all like sheep went astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the sin of us all? Nope. Crookedness of us all. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And as for his generation who considered him that he should be put, cut off from the land of living for the Pesha, transgression or lawlessness of my people, he was, here's that word in our Torah portion for, for the plague of death. The plague of death was put upon him because he had done no Hamas, Torlessness, lawlessness. So everywhere you see red is this word hamartia. Now this is important because hamartia is the predominant word used in the New Testament for sin. Jesus took our sin away. The Greek word is hamartia, which is used here for iniquity. That should tell you something. It's going to get a little bit better. Hold on. Moving on, everything in red is hamartia for just missing the mark. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him and laid sickness upon him. He made himself an offering for sin? Nope. For guilt. See, we, had a, we, we were guilty. We were guilty. Guilt is the result of sin. So was the punishment. He would see as seed, we would prolong his days, and the pleasure of Yahweh prospered in his hand. He would see the result of the suffering of, of his life and be satisfied. Through his knowledge, my righteous servant makes many righteous because he bears their iniquity, crookedness, or hamartia, sin. The New Testament says, bear sin. But that's, it's, it's not sin that we, it's iniquity. Therefore I give him a portion among the great, and he divides the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his being unto death, and he was counted with the Pesha, the transgressors, the lawless ones. And he bore, and I got so upset, I was like, oh, here I found it, there's sin. Oh, but it isn't the sin you think it is. He bore the sin of many and made the intercession for the transgressors, the Pesha. Here's the word for sin here. It's the Hebrew word chet. Oh, you're going to find out what chet is. Chet, it can, obviously it, it means sin, but it'd be like me saying, uh, yeah, you, you only need to know him by one name, and it's El Shaddai. Just El Shaddai covers it all. Not to mention all these other names that he's revealed himself to us as the healer, the provider, the, the, the seer, all these things that he does, the redeemer, the deliverer, the savior. No, you only need to know one word, and that's El Shaddai. All sufficient. That's what happens when we group everything under the word sin. When there's all these other definitions that can mean something different than just sin. Watch this. The word chet means sin and punishment. Oh, punishment. He bore the punishment of many. He bore the death of many. A sin that must be punished by death. The noun, which it is a noun in this word, includes the concept of punishment. 
So what was put upon him? What did he bear? What did he nassah? What did he take and carry? The death, the punishment, and the guilt. Which is what we had upon us. That's what the Messiah took. I've read through this whole thing of Isaiah, the suffering servant. Is there anything here about... No. Sin, iniquity, transgression, the sin of, of, of death sentence, punishment. I'm proposing to you that what the Messiah took and dealt with, which it says in the New Testament, very clear, what was nailed to the cross was death. And that's what was dealt with here, the death sentence, which is the curse, okay? Romans 7.20, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it. How many of you said this? But sin which dwells in me. Ah, this is that word harmatia. And here's what harmatia means, or highlighted in, in, in yellow. This word harmatia never denotes a defect or defectiveness. What came to the northern kingdom, they were defective, and there was defectiveness, and they had to be kicked out. But this type of sin does not denote a defectiveness. Let me tell you why. Look at number two. It's to have done something that needs what? Expiation. What does that mean? Anybody know what expiation means? Huh? Sacrifice? Atonement? So this is the kind of sin that needs some kind of a sacrifice. In other words, all of the sins that the Jews committed before Christ that didn't have death attached to it, they were able to take an animal, bring an animal to the high priest, and that did what? It expiated for their sin. And it atoned for it and it took it away. It says in the Torah that it'll be forgiven and he'll remember it no more. It doesn't deal at all with the death sentence. Can't do that with the death sentence. Only with the thing that brings about sin that's different than the death. I hope I'm making sense. Watch what it says. The word does not of itself denote the guilt or penalty of sin. So this word, harmatia, that you see in the New Testament so many times, it's not referring to the guilt or punishment. And therefore, are not punished. Leviticus 10.17 says, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy. And he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before Yahuwah. How many of you read in the Bible over and over it says, and now they will bear their sins? Now they will bear their sins. You know what the word for sin is here every single time? Punishment. Guilt. You see, to bear someone, to, in, the, in the Hebrew concept, to bear your own sin means to bear your own punishment. When the northern kingdom was sent away, they were bearing their own punishment and guilt until the one that came to take it away. And now they don't have a punishment or guilt upon them anymore. They're redeemed. They're delivered of it. Tammy mentioned something to me a couple weeks ago that was very, very profound. And she says, correct me if I get it off, she said, when you are redeemed from something, you no longer have to deal with that which you were redeemed from. 
Is that right? Okay, say it again. Okay, you're not fully, go ahead, say it again. You're not fully redeemed until your captor or whatever has you bound has been fully been taken care of. Okay. So redemption isn't complete until that that which is holding you captive is been destroyed. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at what Yeshua did. What was holding us captive? Death, curse, guilt, punishment. Did he put that to? De- did he deal with it? Yes. So we have redemption. I have a question for you. Are we still dealing with sin? Then it hasn't been dealt with yet. If I'm redeemed from sin as I was with death and the punishment of that death, I wouldn't be dealing with sin anymore. Is there a promise in the scriptures that the day is coming I'm not going to have to deal with it anymore? Yes! That day's coming at the final redemption, which all our brother Judah is waiting for the final redemption when all sin will be put away. And we won't deal with that anymore because it will be thrown where? In the lake of fire. Yes. Oh, did you have something to say? You were holding like... Oh, go ahead. Well, first of all, I I would like to apologize to the community and specifically Mark for my words I chose last week, which may not have been articulated very well, but my heart and intent is what Mark is preaching today. I'm asking that we dig deeper. Yep. If we just got done studying, sorry to interrupt, we just got done studying the plagues. They come in three groups of three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, if you study it that way. Those are more for our corporate or community, either to the Egyptians or Israelites or to them together. The tenth plague is at an individual's choice. So the problem with sin is death and slavery. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life and Messiah Yeshua. But the wages, it doesn't say the wages of sin. To earn a wage is to receive something which you did good. The word is opsonion in Greek, which means... Uh, uh, rations. Which so is the consequence. The consequence. The rations of sin is death. So as a slave, you're given rations. John 8.34 says, Yeshua answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. So it's death and slavery. The Lamb of God, the Lamb that was placed, the blood across the door, dealt with death. The lamb which they ate gave them freedom, gave them strength to get out of Egypt. They used that as nourishment, but when the lamb inside of them ran out, they ate the, uh, me, they ate the matzah that they had left, the earthly bread. But then later, the Lord gave them matzah, the spiritual bread, to feed them. And we live off that spiritual bread today, which is the word of the Lord. We must eat of it every day. If you don't eat, you don't live. And if next week or two weeks from now, whenever it may be, Exodus 14, 13, and Moses told the people, fear not. When you fear not, that means you are not afraid of anything. He's saying you, then he says stand. If you're fearing and not, you're not standing, you're cowarding, 
you're hunching down. He says, for the salvation of the Lord. That doesn't say salvation. It's for the Yeshua of the Lord is going to be there for you. And he is the one that's going to take your oppressor. For the Egyptians you see for this day, you will no longer see anymore. And that's what Tammy's saying there. So that's what I was trying to say from my heart last week, is the sin is death and slavery, because it all gets to that point where the salvation or the Yeshua of the Lord is going to be there for us. And that's what's dealt with at, 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 at Passover, redemption time. It's about dealing with death. Every single time we're seeing in Scripture, it's about dealing with death. So, I have just a couple more slides and we're going to close. Iniquity refers to behavior that is crooked. That's why you see the word crookedness. Sin refers to moral failure. And transgression refers to breaking trust. The word pesha, or transgression, signifies a revolt against the standard. So now you see why, talking about the suffering servant, you saw the word transgression coming out. The northern kingdom had revolted against the standard of the Torah. And iniquity means either to deviate from the standard or to twist the standard into your own interpretation, which uh, Jeroboam did. He says, oh, you know what? We don't need to do sacrifices there. We don't need to do feasts there. We're going to create our own here. And he twisted the whole standard to meet his own desire. And of course, we've been ha that's happening all throughout the last 2,000 years has been happening. So this is why he had to come. He had to deal with these, these br the breach of, of the contract, the death sentence, the curse, and the divorce so that you and I can have fellowship with him again. And all of the ones he promised of Abraham's seed could come to the land because they couldn't as long as they had that curse. As long as death was on them, they couldn't. So to, to, to keep his promise, he had to die. Blood, his blood had to be shed. Now I want to share one other thing with you before we, or two other things before we close. So the, he, the Greek word for redemption is Ephesus, and uh, Rico Cortez did an amazing teaching on this Ephesus, if you ever find it. He came here and taught on it. So watch what it says here about redemption. This is the definition from Holman's Dictionary. It's to pay a price in order to secure the release. Remember, he died at the Shemitah year, which is the year of release, right? He says, this is, the, I, I'm, uh, this is the favorable year of the Lord. It's the year of release. To the release of something or someone, it connotes the idea of paying what is required in order to liberate from oppression enslavement, or another type of binding obligation. Now let me tell you something. We had those things against us, and we needed a redeemer. But it couldn't be just a redeemer. It had to be a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. Messiah was the hope looking forward before the cross. To all who had guilt upon them who were bearing their punishment. He is also the hope for all looking back to the cross who had the same issues. You say, well, wait a minute, Mark. They, you know, those people, they, they didn't know Christ. I'm going to show you something. This is really interesting. David commits capital crime with Uriah. What's the punishment for what he did to Uriah? What's the punishment? Death. David said to Nathan, I have sinned 
against Yahweh, and Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. Well, you're going to love this. So the word here is chata. I'm sorry, chatat, because chata means just the same word hamartia means descent. But the chatat, watch what it says. When it's in the noun form, look at it, I've got it highlighted in noun. Uh, in Genesis 18:20, the noun refers to the condition of sin, which would be death, if it's a death sentence. What's the condition of David's uh, uh, murder? He's got a death sentence, okay? It is paired with pesha, which we talked about, read all through, which is transgression, that the suffering servant does, another common term for sin. In Leviticus and in Numbers, the noun appears many times, alternating and meaning between sin, the reality of disobedience to God, and in this context, the noun, asham, is closely related or I'm sorry, the noun is closely related with asham, which is often translated as a guilt offering. So he says to Nathan, I have guilt and punishment upon me, and he tells David that Yahweh has taken away your punishment for that death. I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to elaborate on this. Before I say that, I'll say both the noun and the verb are an emphasis in Deuteronomy 9.18. The noun is used for Israel's particular sin, the golden calf. What does the sin of the golden calf bring? Death, right? It is paired with Pesha again and Avon, iniquity, which is often translated as iniquity. So David gets the news that he's the guy that Nathan brought up the story about. He's the one that deserves death. What does David do? David knows that according to God's word, he cannot go get a lamb or a goat and run to the priest and bring atonement. Can he? Can he bring a lamb or a goat and bring atonement to the priest? No. He's under a death sentence. So what does he do? He runs to the altar. He grabs a hold of the horns of the altar. And he looks forward to the day that the Redeemer is going to come. Because he knows. He says, my Redeemer lives. He looks forward to the day the Redeemer is going to come and die for that death sentence. He says, God in heaven, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. Forgive me of this death that is against me. Forgive me of this death sentence. Take away the guilt that I have against me. What does Nathan say? Yahuwah has forgiven you of the punishment and death that lays against you. So don't tell me that the people in the past couldn't look forward to the cross and have redemption and salvation from the sentence that was against them. David is the example of everybody before Messiah who could have salvation through the knowledge of the Redeemer. It's a perfect example of what happened before the cross and how we, after the cross, did we see it happen? David didn't see the, the crucifixion. We didn't see it either. But all of us are looking to that point and believing what the Word said about the Redeemer, the Holy One, who would take away the death sentence. And all that believe in that, forget the name of who the person is that did it, but you believe in the act 
that he's the one that makes it happen. It's yours. It's yours. Salvation is yours. All that believe. What does Joel say? All that call upon the name of Yahweh shall be what? Saved. That's Old Testament words. Yes. There's so many people out there that just love Yahushua, right? <laughs> but they may not be following Torah, but they love him. And I, I call it an identity crisis, an identity problem, because they love him, but they're not following Torah. It's a shame how if they would find their identity, they could fully rejoice, rejoice in that death sentence that was lifted up. But yes, they love him. Yes, they rejoice. But I don't think they could fully rejoice. Um, I want to tie in like the firstborn Ephraim. Um, in a Genesis, I can't remember if it was 12 or somewhere, but Jacob is blessing um, Ephraim and Manasseh, I think is how I say it. And um, he says, through Ephraim, all the kings and, and, and all the, the people of the earth are going to come through him. And um, I believe we are Ephraim. And, we, and if the people could just understand that, they could rejoice. Amen. And if you go, if you go to um, Ezekiel 46, you know, uh, when the New Jerusalem comes and, and the land is being divided up, there's two portions given to, um, to Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And we, you know, in, in um, um, Galatians 3, I think 29, it says we are Abraham's seed. You know, it's through that that we are a part of his people, and we actually get land that's given to us, two portions to Joseph. So, I mean, if people could just understand that, they could fully rejoice, and that's, I'm so excited. Because that death sentence has been lifted up. It goes, it's, you know, you're, you're happy for that, but you could rejoice fully more when you go to his feast and and um, learn to love him more with your, the people around you. Amen. So this kind of it gives an idea of what, why the, the uh, Ezekiel 40 through 50 talks about the temple that the Savior, the Messiah, is going to build, and there's going to be sacrificial chambers in it. Why? Because those deal with the sins that don't bring about death. There's a way, God provided a way to, to atone for those sins, Right? The people that are following Torah, they make, miss the mark, they commit a sin. God's made a way for that. That's what that's all about. Today, when we commit sin, what do we do? We repent. We ask for forgiveness. There's a way for that. Our lips substitute for the bulls, it says. My hands spread out to, towards heaven or as if I'm at the evening offering time. But we have a way to do that. But the death sentence, the curse and the divorce, boy, you've got to come through the Lamb of God. You've got to come through that or you're done. There's no way in. You're, you're out. But once you're in covenant, when you make mistakes, you miss the mark, God's got a way. You're not the one that's the sinner. You're just the one who's missed the mark. You make amends, and you're, all's good. We've got a way to, to cover that. Yes. Uh, our Elohim didn't command us to follow the Torah for no reason, and we don't follow the Torah. I mean, we don't, and we uh, gosh, I don't know how to word it, but we don't follow the Torah for no reason either, and it's for our salvation. If we don't follow the Torah, then we're just 
were nothing. Well, I can say that there was no way I could follow the Torah until after I had been saved. Right. What, because the Torah meant nothing to me until I was able to come back into covenant relationship. What good does it do? I, now that I'm redeemed, now that I am saved, because the first redemption, then salvation, now the, the next step is come into covenant and follow the king. Do as the king says. That's what we do. So, yeah, it's, and I think people need to get the order right because you cannot have redemption or salvation until you first have redemption. Cannot be saved while you're still dead. Death's got to be, as she pointed out, death has to be dealt with in order to be saved. They, what has to be dealt with here before they are saved? He says in Exodus 12, they come out, I have saved Israel. But they had to deal with the enemy of Egypt, and especially in the Red Sea before it was done. Yeah, okay. Everyone, did you have a comment? Dan? Okay. Well, you, you had that look like you had a comment. Okay. I uh, always go back to the pattern of 1 Corinthians 10, where Israel was redeemed from Egypt, brought through the Red Sea. They were brought to the mountain where they made a covenant. They said, we will, there was no salvation yet. They were brought to a mountain where they made a covenant with Yahweh and said, we will do what you say. And they systematically failed at that for the next 40 years, and God killed off people left and right. I would argue that redemption is absolutely first. That is the release from the authority of sin over our life. Yeah. But it is not salvation. Salvation is me agreeing to the covenant that I will walk in his ways and as my heart is to do that, I'm walking out my salvation. Like Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. Right? So, so there's a natural order. Yeah, there's a natural order. Yes. Uh, kind of add to what um, Dan was saying is that we got to remember there was a mixed multitude that left That's right. with, the, with the Israelites. And, yep. and uh, through that um, covenant, they were no longer outside. They were no. They, they became an yep. Israelite yeah. through that covenant. And it doesn't matter, like in Galatians, it's a no matter if you're a Jew, if you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're male <laughs> or female. It don't matter. You're that mixed multitude. It's that covenant that you make. What makes you a Hebrew, which makes you an Israelite. Yep. So we don't. We shouldn't try to like. It, you know, who doesn't look at your race? He looks at who you are. So I have a question for you guys before we close. So if we were to take the whole Exodus thing that Dan just pointed out, the step order here, and we're all in, we're all in Egypt, right? We're all in this other nation here like they were in Egypt, and there's, a, there's still a, a force out, there's still an enemy. And, he, and obviously there's going to come a Passover that's going to come when the Redeemer comes and this whole uh, cap, the, the, those who have us captive in the land, not wanting to let us go, this is going to be dealt with. How important is it going to be then to have the blood of the land? When, when this is going to be dealt with in, in worldwide situation, those who do not have the blood of the lamb, are they going to be released from their captors? They weren't released from it in Egypt. Those that didn't have it, they died right there. I don't care if they were Jew or Egyptian or Midianite. They didn't have it. They were done. Yes. 
Um, um, sorry, I just lost where I was at. Make sure you speak up. Okay. So, um, I just wanted to read Shemot 6, Exodus 6. Okay. Um, Exodus 6 to 9. Okay. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am Yahuwah, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Mitzrayim, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you from a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for your people, and I will be your El, and you shall know that I am Yahuwah your El who brought you up from under the burdens of the Mitzrayim. And I will bring you into the land concerning that which I did swear, to give it to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and I will give it to you for your heritage. I am Yahuwah. So, what I, as I was following you, <laughs> in my crazy way, but anyways, um, so, you started off talking about the firstborn Mitzrayim and who could partake of the Pesach. And in the firstborn, um, Yahuwah told Moshe to go to Pharaoh and say, I want you to release my firstborn so that they can go and serve me. So when we brought ourselves under the curse, we were no longer able to serve him that we put our own selves in bondage and in captivity. But out of his love, as a hava for us, he became our redeemer, our goel, right? And the ga'al, the gimel, the aleph, and the lamet, it's to restore one back. To Some people say to buy back, to bring back. So in Devarim 28, it says, and no one will buy you back. No one will redeem you. Well, he had a plan from the beginning for his redemption. It's even in the where we were bearer's sheet. When you look, break, out, break down the Hebrew letters. So Yahuwah, his begotten firstborn, born was the one who bought his us, the firstborn, that he took, if he did it before, he's going to do it again. So, and he's going to do it again, because even though he's came, we still are in need of that redemption, because we are still in a sick state. We are still in a state to receive that healing, that Greek word that you mentioned, right? He's going to give us his haruka. But we have to want to receive it. And we have to allow him to cover, to clothe us, to buy us back, to restore us to a place that we fell from. And so I am just grateful for that. And as I was thinking, I reflecting on the firstborn and the role of it and Pasak and what all of that means and the Mashiach. And how he's the firstborn. It's very important. The firstborn in Hebrew is the Bakar. Or I mean Bakor. Yes. Bakar children. Bakar. 
So as in bickering. And the firstborn is strength. Yes. And when we unclothe ourselves, we're not in strength. When we're in bondage, we're not in strength because we're captive to something else. And that is why he called the men to go three times a year to for all of the first fruits harvest, the spring, the summer, and the fall, to go to him, to receive the strength for the times of sowing, for the times to reap. And he wants to reap a full harvest, yes. a harvest of first fruits that is acceptable to him. It even goes back to Bereshit 4, Genesis 4, with Abel and Cain offering. Their old now was not sweet to him. I mean, um, Cain's offering was not sweet, but Abel brought the worthy offering. Yeah. So we have to remember to remain in that firstborn state and not to be in bondage because he reminds us repeatedly throughout the Torah, throughout the Tanakh, he says it over and over and over. I am Yahuwah, the one who have brought you up out of the house of Mitzrayim. We can call it Babylon today, but out of the house of Mitzrayim. Yes. Out of the house of bondage. Yes. Because in him, going back to what Bob said, he said, stand still. When they were at the Sea of Regium, stand still and see the Yahusha, the salvation of Yahuwah. He's going to bring us through. He is going to redeem us to our rightful state. Selah. Amen. So let's, let's, very nice. So let's uh, close on this. I'll bring this up. You can read it as, uh, as a, can you stand? So can you imagine what she read there about when he said, some future day, whether it's Yahushua or an agent that he raises up to do it, we're being called to go back to Israel, go out to serve him like they were in Egypt here. And the kings of the earth said, we can't let them go. We're not going to let them go. And the Almighty says, let my firstborn go that they may serve me. Who's the firstborn? Ephraim who's still in the nation. I see it playing out just like it did, just like it did before. Yes. I think you've also highlighted the importance of our lips that substitute for the bulls yes. on a daily basis, how important it is, those of us that are walking as kingdom citizens yes. towards the king and towards, towards the, the goal, goal, when we stumble and fall, the importance of confessing what we have yes. done and asking for his uh, atoning and yep. forgiveness for that and the highlight of Yom Kippur that we just left as we asked as a corporate or a collective for the nation for our sins but on a daily basis for the individual stumbling that we Amen. Well said. Psalm 1-1 How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners. There's that word katatim uh, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah of Yahuwah, and in his Torah he meditates once a month, <laughs> day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, 
which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. Say amen. Father, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for giving us encouragement of who Yeshua came for, what he came for, and why. We thank you for giving us clarity on some of these words that it gives us more understanding of what's going on and, and how we can everything fits in the grand scheme of all that you're doing. We thank you, Father. Thank you for this assembly. Thank you, Father, for your truth that we stand on. We glorify you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now we get to say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you all. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.